and welcome to The Curator on Monocle Radio with me, Emma Searle. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle Radio, with highlights from our studios here at Maduri House and from around the world. This week saw two giant cinematic releases around the globe, with both Oppenheimer and Barbie coming out on the same day. We hear from the Oppenheimer director, Christopher Nolan. The man had tremendous ambition. And he had a tremendous sense of his own theatricality, his own drama. I think those things come into play in his decision-making in ways that are a little frightening when, <laughs> when thought of in the context of, you know, the global well-being, if you want to say, and, and the ways in which he changed the world. Plus... We take a dip into our latest publication, Swim and Sun, a monocle guide to the world's greatest pools, beach clubs and secret lakeside outposts. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Emma Searle. We begin this week's show by hearing from the man responsible for one of the biggest movies of the year. Oppenheimer tells the story of the father of the atomic bomb, J. Robert Oppenheimer, and over three hours, audiences watch how the giddy excitement of the Manhattan Project's scientific progress turns into unthinkable destruction, as the nuclear weapons are deployed for the first and still only time during the Second World War. And ahead of the release, Monocle's Robert Bounds sat down with the Oppenheimer director, Christopher Nolan, to discuss the film. Congratulations on an absolutely wonderful Thank you. film. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, Christopher, first, there is obviously such an antic energy at the centre of it, mm. um, both in his character and what he achieves, such an unstoppable force and momentum. How quickly was that a central part of your sort of filmmaking rubric, if it was? I think right from reading the specifics of his story. I mean, I knew mm -hmm. about the key dramatic events of this incredible story, the Trinity test, the way in which it changed the world forever. But coming to the book, which I've adapted, American Prometheus, uh -huh. by Kai Bird and Montecho, and reading that, there was this incredible sense of suspense and momentum to so many different aspects of his life. There were so many things that happened to him as a young man that decades later come back to haunt him, catch up with him in, in that most sort of cinematic way. And so for me, I've never really wanted to tell a story of somebody's life in, in some kind of traditional sense. I really wanted to just view the events of his life as an experience mm -hmm. to be shared with the audience so that they could, I think, maybe come to some kind of understanding of him rather than judging him. Yeah. And in that way, the momentum of it, I think, is very important because there are a lot of decisions being made in a very pressured environment you know, whether or not to push the button before the Trinity test, even knowing that there was this very small possibility that might destroy the entire world. <laughs> yeah. But so you have to feel that sense of momentum and pressure that's just pushing, pushing, pushing in a particular direction because that's what they're caught up in. And I, w I want to be caught up in that as well so as not to be dispassionate and looking mm -hmm. and, hang on, why do they do this? Why do they do that? You want to really understand the, the momentum of the moment they're in. And... It's a very human drama, obviously, in the, in the wider scheme of things, but in his and his circle of friends, lovers and girlfriends and, 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 and all of that. Um, and I suppose it's an intimate portrait, in a way, of a person that's in often unwilling competitor in this 
in this arms race. Mm. You feel very much like you're on his... I felt very much like the the story and your story, your telling of the story was on his side in that. Mm. Did you feel that he was a kind of unwilling competitor in this race? I don't... I think unwilling Sometimes. is up for debate. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's ambiguous. I think that the man had tremendous ambition mm. and he had a tremendous sense of his own theatricality, his own drama, and how to use that. Uh, and I think those things come into play in his decision-making in ways that are a little frightening when, <laughs> when thought of in the context of, of, you know, the global well-being, if you want to say, and, and the ways in which he changed the world. But that's what's wonderfully involving to me about his story. Reading the book, you know, I get to the moment where I realize that Los Alamos, this place that, that lives in infamy really I mean it's today still one of the key sites of uh, the mm -hmm. development of present day nuclear weapons that was a place he liked to go camping with his brother <laughs> and you know you first hear the name and you're like it's that personal and he says you know if I could find a way to combine physics in New Mexico my life would be complete and you think okay this this desire this idiosyncratic you know simple human feeling about things is going to change the world forever. Yeah. Yes, it does feel like that. It feels like uh, if it happened in a British context, the new forest would never be the same or something like this. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Beware. Exactly. Yeah, Cheltenham. Where you, spend, you know, where you spend your summer holidays, <laughs> exactly. And in that human sense, there's a, there's a sort of... It's quite a chamber piece. A lot of it happens in rooms and cocktail parties, in lecture theatres and in classrooms and things. Mm. As much as that broad new town, which kind of Los Alamos becomes, I suppose. Yeah. What was, and obviously set against the, the vastness of the ambition of the project and, and what it laid waste to, I suppose. You're quite sparing with the pyrotechnics in mm. this movie. And I wondered, again, a bit like my first question, how early that was written into your plan for the film to it's not a crash-bang-wallop situation that we find ourselves in, despite the largeness yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, scale and, and, you know, we talked about momentum, but, but mm. scale in, in cinema is a, it's a hard thing to pin down. It's not just about the literal scale of the set you build or the, the world you're trying to create. It's often about the humanity involved mm. and... and we knew we needed and we got, you know, the, the huge vistas of New Mexico in contrast with the people, there, you know, the, the thunderous nature of the weather there and everything that prefigures and so forth. Mm. But ultimately, a lot of the scale comes from the group of people who are assembled, the disparate points of view that come together, uh, the community of scientists, the military community, how they interact. And, you know, very early on, it was apparent to me that, that having got... Killian to play the lead, and now needed to people this world with a lot of extraordinary actors. Mm. You know, and we have Matt Damon and Robert Downey Jr., Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, many others, but also a lot of fresher faces, young actors coming together to portray. You know, it's Richard Feynman or Robert Serber. You know, these guys mm. coming together to get across it. a couple of interesting facts about this story: the average age of everyone in Los Alamos is about twenty-eight the number of Americans involved in making the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki is about 600,000. So this was an, the ultimate sort of group effort. You know, the team at Los Alamos, which was thousands strong, often I was having to wrangle this, and we wanted to feel the scale of that problem. So I didn't write any 
composite characters, which is what people yeah. often do when they're adapting real life. I just wrote a lot of names and faces that, that were going to come in and do their thing. And what I wanted to trust is that if we could cast them right and give everybody their own sort of unique energy, the audience would remember what they needed to remember. They wouldn't necessarily know people's names, but they'd know that, okay, that guy, yeah. Is, yeah. that guy is that bit of the story, that guy is that bit of the story. But you wanted to get this feeling of tremendous scale to the personalities involved. That was the world-renowned director Christopher Nolan speaking to Monocle's Robert Bound, and you can hear the full conversation on this week's episode of Monocle on Culture. Next up, we hear a highlight from this week's edition of Tall Stories. It was a gasworks in a tiny village halfway between Vienna and Bratislava, where 55 years ago, Russian gas started flowing into Western Europe and its dependency on Moscow began. But now the governments have decided to wean themselves off Russian energy because of the war in Ukraine. So what is the remaining legacy for the village? Monocle's Alexei Korlyov filed this report from the sleepy town of Baumgarten under March, where Western Europe's dependency on Russian gas began. Herr Minister Mitterer, der Jahresbericht, den Sie heute vorgelegt haben, hat noch in letzter Minute sozusagen einen besonderen Aufputz erhalten. Sie haben mitgeteilt, dass die sogenannten Erdgasverträge unterzeichnet wurden. Worum geht es dabei? Es geht darum, das russische Erdgas nach Österreich zu importieren. Durch die ÖMV. In July 1968, Austrian Trade Minister Otto Mitterer gave an interview to the country's national broadcaster, ORF. In it, he explained why, a month before, Austria had become the first country in Western Europe to sign a gas deal with Moscow. Russian gas, he said, was cheap, and it would power the Austrian economy. And central to the whole project was the tiny village of Baumgarten an der Mach, near the border with Czechoslovakia. At two o'clock in the morning of the 21st of August, Czechoslovak radio could be heard announcing the arrival of fraternal forces from the Soviet Union. And the announcement was Just weeks after the interview, the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia. But the deal and the gasworks at Baumgarten remained intact. They still are. Austria's energy giant OMV has a contract with Gazprom until 2040. It was a risk, a, a long-term delivery contract, 20 years, with Soviets, uh, which uh, occupied Czechoslovakia. So it, it was a risk. Otto Moselek was managing director of OMV between 1996 and 2007. He says there was good reason why Baumgarten was chosen as the gateway for Russian gas. It was quite near. It was a couple of, of kilometers. A pipeline was necessary to construct, crossing the river of Mach. And therefore, it was relatively easy, uh, despite the Iron Curtain. And the, the infrastructure in Czechoslovakia was relatively good uh, organized. And therefore, it was possible to make the first deliveries in September. And after that, other European countries signed the contract with the Soviets, Germany, France, Italy. And the Italian decided to transport the gas via Austria, not via Hungary. And we uh, constructed the, uh, the next metering station in Baumgarten for the Italians, Trans-Austria gas line. And after that, uh, the West-Austria gas line with the uh, French. And the development was so that Baumgarten was developed as a 
European import and European hub to import Russian gas, former Soviet gas. Then, as now, Baumgarten was a quiet backwater, a one-horse town where nothing ever happened. Yet, as Otto Muzelek recalls, for decades before European gas markets were liberalized in the early 2000s, it was the scene of some intense international diplomacy. Every month, on the fifth working day, every month, it was a, a, a big meeting between the international parties, especially with the Russians, to sign the delivery protocols. And at this time, there was three to six Russian representatives, one French, three to five Italian representatives, every day at Baumgarten. And this was the reason why I'm so, so often in Baumgarten. There were discussions every day, and, and we are responsible for the metering, for the gas quality control. Therefore, it was a very, very interesting and a, a big experience for me, and I enjoyed it. And even though now Europe wants to move away from Russian energy, Otto Muzelek is convinced that in 1968, Austria made the right call. The Austrians are always under critic. We are so dependent on, on Russian gas. That's true, that's no doubt. But many years, more than 50 years, it was, uh, a, let me say, a good step to secure the freedom and the, and the relationship between Russia and Europe, not only Austria and Europe. For Monocle in Baumgarten, I'm Alexei Korolev. Sinead O'Connor, the Irish singer-songwriter known for her outspoken provocations as much as for her ethereal voice, has died. She was 56. To examine her legacy, Monocle's Emma Nelson was joined by Thomas Cross, an award-winning radio presenter on Dublin's number one breakfast show, FM 104. Thomas began by recalling how the singer had touched the lives of so many. What a strange, I'd say, 24 hours it's been in Ireland, and I think probably around the world as well. I read a, a comment yesterday by someone saying that I didn't know her personally, but I felt that she's been there for kind of key moments in our lives. And a lot of people kind of, you know, they resonated with it. You know, she was always the one that kind of shouted the loudest for people who didn't have a voice. And I think now that she's passed away, looking back at all those moments worldwide, you're kind of going, wow, she she kind of was that person. She was a small, petite woman. When you met her in her company, I, I've been lucky enough to been in her company a few times and she has this presence. I don't know what it is, but you kind of just want to ask her questions, but you don't want to be rude to ask her questions. Um, only a couple of months ago, um, we had a, a music, kind of like the Brit Awards, the Irish version of the Brit Awards, and she was going to win a win an award for one of her albums uh, back in the early 90s. And a lot of people were like, she's not going to turn up, you know, like we'll just hand out the award and, you know, give her a round of applause, play some of her songs. And then she appeared in Vicar Street in Dublin and the roaring and the cheering. She looked glowing. She had such beautiful words to say. And as I said, she was standing up for the Ukrainian people and she was telling antidotes about that. And she was saying, look, we need to shout more. We need to shout louder. And I was like, wow, this woman, you know, she retired from music in 2021, but yet is still coming out for public appearances like this. And 
when she is, she's doing it for a reason. You know, she's telling us things that we need to know about. And I, I think her career has always been like that, hasn't it? Like it, she she's always been the one like not caring about, you know, number ones or whatever. She'd rather get her voice out there and no. say something. You're quite right in saying that she sort of just exploded onto the scene, didn't she? Because in nine, we have to go all the way back to 1990 when she comes from nowhere, and then suddenly this video ap- appears of her doing this astonishing Prince cover of "Nothing Compares to You," and it becomes a definitive moment in music, doesn't it? It is everywhere. It breaks records right across the world. It was the first song from her second album, and I, I was hearing a, a couple of people talking about it last night. They were going. Is she going to record it? What will she do with it? And apparently Prince himself even was like, wow, like you have, this is your song. This is your ownership of a song that that was mine in my back catalogue. And I think anyone now, when you think of nothing compares to you, you think of Sinead O'Connor. Only last year, Olivia Rodrigo, what age is she? 19, 20, performed in Dublin. And I remember being there and full of 15 to just say 25-year-old crazy Olivia Rodrigo fans and her second last song was Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You and I remember standing there in the back of the arena and I turned to my partner and I was like none of these people were probably alive when Sinead released this every single person knew the words to the song and I was like that has to be something there has to be something there when an artist can do something like that when she doesn't have a like songs on the scene constantly and um, the 90s were there were a turbulent time for Sinead I think everyone remembers the the SNL moment where she ripped up the picture of the Pope uh, because of stuff that was good on the Catholic Church here in Ireland and it wasn't for 10 like 10 years later when you know confirmation of things like that were going on so she kind of was a trailblazer with stories and didn't mind that you know that she was going to be the first person like I think most radio stations in in America most people in America turn their back on her and they're thinking that is it you know she's going to be destroyed she's she doesn't you know she's never going to return from this and she did and she didn't care that ripping up of the picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live in 1992. She then says, I wasn't sorry, I did it, it was brilliant. But it was open season then from that that point. And there was arguably the turning point where people started to treat her differently, her commercial career suffered. And then you just saw a woman who, uh, for whom struggle was an incredibly public thing because she became a priest, she converted to Islam, she changed her name. I mean, she once said that normal seems like a disease. Yeah, she she was very curious about religion, very, very curious about religion. And uh, that moment, I think it was in 20, it was in 1999 where she said she wanted, like she wanted to be a priest. People were going, what's going on? But she always felt comfortable in what she was doing every single time. Uh, we have a, a, a talk show here in Ireland, kind of like the Graham Norton show. And um, only, I'd say it was maybe a year ago, two years ago, where she came on and she had uh, converted to Islam and she had um, sang Nothing Compares to You. And I remember that night, everyone in Ireland were looking at her going, we need to mind Sinead. We need to make sure she's okay. She went through her troubles. Uh, She's predeceased by her son, Shane, who passed away last year. I don't think she ever got over it. Uh, Like, I think it broke her heart and... She had her own troubles, but if only she knew that everybody in Ireland and around the world, like if you see the the 
the public messages from massive celebrities to, you know, organizations to charities. Um, she'd only just sold her house um, in a place an hour outside of Dublin recently. And she realized she had too much clothes. So she was ringing around personally, women shelters going, I have clothes. Would you please take them? My, my new house can't fit them. You're kind of like, what, what celebrity would do that? You know, what person would be so personable to, you know, r- ring a, char- a charity organization like that and just go, look, take my clothes, take this. I don't need them anymore. So I, I would hope that people would remember Sinead for all those beautiful moments that she did in her life. And listen to her songs like I was driving into work here this morning and I was flicking on radio stations and it was eerie people were playing songs that I hadn't heard from in years uh with Sinead and you're kind of just kind of smiling and hoping hoping she's at peace now that was the Irish broadcaster Thomas Cross there speaking to Monocle's Emma Nelson Still to come here on The Curator, we sit down with the award-winning Mexican chef Enrique Olvera, thumb through Monocle's latest book, Swim and Sun, and we hear from Iceland's Minister of Foreign Affairs. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle Radio, and I'm Emma Searle. Now we turn our attention to a great new publication called Slop, a food magazine dedicated to produce. Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco was joined in the studio by the title founders, Jack Stanley and Nicholas Payne-Bader. They began by explaining why there was a gap in the market for a magazine like it. We basically wanted to create something that focused on everything in between a farm and a restaurant. I used to be a butcher and it was kind of when I was doing that that I realised there's nothing that covers this and I think people are really interested in it and people don't really know where their food comes from and we just wanted to create something that was quite joyous, quite serious but also light-hearted, hence why it's called Slop and it's bright orange, (laughs) but something where we could kind of talk seriously about food, producers and people that sell that food, your greengrocers, butchers, fishmongers, people like that. And... Jack, Nicholas was saying he's a butcher as well. Did you always work in the food industry or the print industry or is this a new thing for you? I've always worked in magazines. So I was the editor of an online magazine for five or so years. I knew Nick through that a long time ago. And then, yeah, about a year ago, we were talking about me maybe quitting my job. And Nick said, well, I've had this very strange idea, which is a magazine about produce. We thought it'd be a fun project that kind of built on both of our interests and the areas that we worked in for our career so far. And here we are. And what I think interesting about Slop, because of course, when you when I read food magazines, I mean, it's lovely. There are a lot of interviews with chefs or the best restaurants in the world, trends. But it's interesting to know the people that are actually making things or selling things independently. Is that why perhaps you decided to launch Slop to celebrate those people? Yeah, that was a big part of it. And I think there's so many interesting things that you can go into from that perspective. And yeah, as I kind of said, that food media is so focused on restaurants so much of the time. And we do deal with restaurants, but mm-hmm. we like when we talk to chefs, it's much more about how they feel about produce and how they feel about their suppliers. And I think especially lockdown really brought people 
into independent food shops, brought people to their local shops that were doing interesting things. And in a sense, when I was a butcher, there was this thing, you would have a conversation on a Saturday morning with someone, and they'd say, oh, what are these pork chops about? Or something like that. And you would have a really good conversation, and people were really thirsty for that knowledge. And so I kind of wanted to bring that Saturday morning conversation about food into a wider space and give it to more people. And perhaps, Jack, tell us about some of the highlights. I mean, it's interesting because I live in London and I haven't been to some of those shops, but it's giving me a lot of inspiration. Uh, like, for example, Boran Sons in, in Estelich. I used to live there and I've never been there, but I should. Tell us about some of the, the highlights in this issue as well. Well, I think the idea of giving inspiration is a really big part of it. I would say that Boran Sons, I hadn't been until Nick said we should put it in the mag. And, it and he's on the cover, I have to say. He is on the cover, he's <laughs> on, yeah. And that's, it's an amazing shop with more fruit than I even knew existed. There's an amazing piece on there that Nick wrote about Slovakian wine, which, again, I knew nothing about. Mm. And since he came back from Slovakia, we've been drinking exclusively. And then something that I worked on in there, which was a real, I think, coup for our first issue, was a feature with Jeremy Lee, who is the most kind of amazing, colourful character and really helped bring the magazine to life with his his ideas in there. So there are three highlights, but I'm very pleased with all of it. This story about Slovakian wine, I thought it was super interesting. So... Do you recommend Slovakian wine? It's absolutely delicious. And it's, there's this funny thing, especially with the Slovakian wine, is I'd say to most people, oh, I had this amazing Slovakian wine. They're like, oh, I didn't even know they made wine there. And the story kind of went deeper than I expected it to in a, in a few different ways that there's like a 400-year history. They used to make all this amazing wine. Then communism came along, totally disrupted the industry for a whole generation. And then there's a small group of people there who are trying to bring back those things, really work with the terroir, make something make something interesting and make something that's kind of true to a cultural identity that was lost for quite a while. And then even when I was there, one of the winemakers, we were driving back and it kind of, the war in Ukraine came up. We were only about two hours from the Ukrainian border. He was like, oh, this is still quite a live issue. And, and he said, yeah, I put it in the article, that he said, you know, when I die, I want it to be in Slovakia and not in Western Russia. And I was like, wow, this sense of being able to talk about bigger issues and talk about culture through food, I think is really powerful. And I think it's really interesting. Amazing. Jack, I want to ask, because of course, the magazine is free. How are you guys distributing the magazine? How? What's the plan? I mean, I, I know we can find in some places here in London for sure. But tell us if someone is interested, perhaps to grab a copy. So we're in a range of kind of retailers in London, most of which are food and drinks retailers, the kind of grocers that we write about or the butchers that we write about. And then we're in a few lifestyle stores here. And then we're trying to get as many stockists as far and wide as possible. So there's a great deli just outside Manchester who have it. There's a magazine shop there who also have it. And yeah, we've sent some out to a clothing store in Copenhagen who want it. So we're really... We want to kind of spread the message of the stuff. The reason that we started the magazine is to spread the word about these producers that we love. And so we're trying to get the magazine into as many places as possible. And we are also, it will be available online to order. We're just not there yet. Oh, amazing. And uh, Nicholas, recently we had on the stack Daniela Vibogan. She has a, a kiosk selling food magazines in Vienna. But that's just to say that there is such an interest in food, in food titles, in, in the history of food, or, or even a magazine like yours, which is quite creative because it focuses on produce. Why do you think that? Why do you think people are so interested? Well, in food in general, actually, to read about it. I think in a sense, it's something that people have fallen out of 
and people have become more distant from probably over the last 20 or 30 years, you know, supermarkets coming in, people becoming distanced from small places. And I think, you know, as I said before, the lockdown really helped people to re-engage with that. And I think also there's an element of, very fairly, people seeing food as, as a lifestyle indicator and a kind of something, what they put into their bodies is actually part a quite important thing. And I think that there's an element of all of these supermarkets going, oh, this is Dave, he makes our carrots. And people being like, I don't think Dave does make your carrots. <laughs> like, I think that this is, you know, you coming up with this stuff. And so people really kind of wanting to come through that and see something a bit more genuine and, yeah, kind of better for the planet, better for your health, better for the local economy, kind of, yeah, re-engaging with that. That was the founders of Slop magazine in conversation with Monocle's Fernanda Augusta Pacheco. The title can be found in retailers in London, Manchester and Copenhagen. For more, go to slopmagazine.com. Next up, we travel to Venice Beach, Los Angeles to join Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord. For this week's edition of Food Neighbourhoods, Chris spoke with the award-winning Mexican chef Enrique Olvera at his new restaurant, Atla. I think a newcomer to really take note of is Atla, which is the Mexican chef Enrique Olvera's new space right there on Abbot Kinney Boulevard. Atla is a brand that, that Enrique started in New York, but people will probably know him more for starting in Mexico City with Pujol, widely acclaimed as one of the world's best restaurants. He's a kind of uh, if you like, a sort of anthropologist at heart, I think, for, a Mex- for Mexican cuisine, where he delves into the origins of so much of the food that comes out of that country and shows you actually how uh, how deep that rabbit hole goes. Because when Mexican food comes to to, the, to America, obviously it goes through this lens quite often of what gets called Tex-Mex or, you know, this kind of slightly more Americanized version of these American of these Mexican staples. Whereas I think what Enrique is very interested in is actually saying, hey, you know, there is a whole world of dining in this country that people just simply are either forgetting or they have just in the memory of their homes and what they eat when they're at home. And he's done a lot of work in terms of safeguarding everything, not just recipes, but also even ingredients, varieties of corn. He has invested in growing very unusual varieties of corn, obviously a staple of Mexican cooking, which were in danger of disappearing because they're not so sought after anymore. So he's a very interesting chef. With Atla, it's a little bit simpler. It, it is plates that are familiar. They are, you know, they're tostadas and they are things that are on many of the taco trucks you can see around here, but so elevated and so interesting. And everything has got such a distinct Olvera hand in it when you, when you sample the menu. So really brand new, just opening in August. And so I spent a bit of time with Enrique Olvera on a preview night that he gave uh, to a few journalists and friends of the brand to see this Atla in action. And I started by asking him just to tell me a little bit about this brand uh, and how it defines itself in his growing group of restaurants. Well, we're, we're really excited to be here. Uh, California to us for, uh, for several reasons feels a lot like home uh, and especially this area in Los Angeles. Uh, I've been coming here constantly for the last eight years and uh, I always try to stay close to the ocean. It makes me live a healthier lifestyle. Uh, I like running next to the to the water. Uh, I enjoy the vibe, no, like the easiness of the people uh, here, like the breeze of the ocean. You can actually smell it. So uh, we've always been attracted to this area. 
there's people that we love their businesses around here too. Uh, so it, it felt natural to, to try to open an Atla in this part of LA. Now you've brought a similar menu to what you have in New York City, but you've given it a few California touches, especially the produce, just what you can find in the bread basket here in California. Yes, uh, California is obviously known for the quality of the produce. No, the Santa Monica Farmers Market has been. Uh, no, I, I think. Have you been frequenting it? Have you been going down there and checking out what's on sale? Yeah, we love it there. Uh, I think it's one of the the nicest farmers market uh, in the entire country, and and we love the produce here. So we obviously want to showcase it. Um, Atla, I think, has also found its place. Uh, in the like conceptually, you know, we we feel like uh, everyday Mexican simple food, uh, quality driven food that you can also eat almost every day. Uh, tortillas, uh, very simple tacos, uh, uh, amazing margarita. So trying to to make it uh, simple, accessible, and clean has become uh, very important for the Atla brand. We want people to come often, and we think that uh, we can do that. With, with great produce. In a way, you know, your career in so many senses has been, you know, delving into the heritage of Mexican cuisine. If you, if you like reintroducing the cuisine to the country again and saying, hey, this is, we've got such an amazing legacy. And yet here in California, you know, in so many ways, Mexico drives this culinary scene. You know, south of the border, so many flavors and ideas come up here and they get changed, of course. What can Atla bring, do you think? What do you, what, what do you bring into this, if you like, that's a bit different in a city where Mexico is so important to the culinary scene? Yeah, I think, we, uh, I mean, every, every Mexican restaurant is a little bit different. Uh, like you said, we've been focusing a lot on, on creating a, uh, an identity for the entire Casamata group. Uh, I think what we're specialized on is uh, being, like having authenticity, but not stereotypical. We obviously love our country. We, we like showcasing uh, Mexico, but we also enjoy being part of the community. So whenever we open, we try to immerse ourselves uh, in the local neighborhood. No, the space seems very Californian. We obviously love breakfast burritos, no? We, we're not purists of Mexican cuisine. I think a, a, a breakfast burrito is also Mexican in a way. And this city is run on breakfast burritos, isn't it? <laughs> so we're obviously including those on the menu. And, and we believe, no, uh, cuisines travel and, and culture travels. Uh, Mexican cuisine is infiltrated uh, in, the, in, in all of California. A, lo- a lot of restaurants that are not even Mexican use a lot of Mexican ingredients and techniques. Uh, so, like I said, it feels natural for us to be here. It, re- it really does feel like home. Enrique, give me a little spin through this menu. What's on there? What's a few highlights that you're excited about opening up here? Um, we're especially excited about the, the tacos. No, uh, we, we like... Uh, composed tacos, no, the suadero I think is uh, amazing, which is this uh, beef cooked in, in beef fat, so kind of like carnitas but with beef. Um, I think any any good taqueria will also say the, the salsas are the most important part. I think our, our salsa matcha is amazing as well. Uh, and and we j- also the beverage program I think is amazing, no, the, the agua fresca. Uh, we have a coconut licuado that I, I personally love. Um, so we're, we're focusing on, on food that uh, has the heritage, but it's also uh, like refreshing and, and, and vibrant, no, and strong flavors, uh, but not too intimidating, not too, not things that you cannot relate to. 
That was the Mexican chef Enrique Olvera in conversation with Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord. You're listening to The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle Radio. Monocle's latest book, Swimming Sun, a Monocle Guide to the World's Greatest Pools, Beach Clubs and Secret Lakeside Outposts, is already flying off the shelves in bookstores near you. The guide celebrates the world of swimming and this week on The Globalist, we were highlighting some of the essays you can find inside. In this highlight, Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Romella, guides us through Italian beach club culture. Take a listen. A common misconception about Italians sees them as passionate, sometimes chaotic people who behave instinctively, led by their emotions. Those who believe in such a characterization have clearly never been to a bagno, one of the thousands of beach clubs that line the country's coast in August. Life in Italy is, in fact, governed by hundreds of unspoken and often inflexible behavioural rules that range from when it is appropriate to have a cappuccino, only ever in the morning, to how late you can be for a university lecture, which goes for the professor too. Nowhere is this concentration of rules more evident than at the bagno. Beach life in Italy isn't about carefree relaxation, it's a seasonal adjustment of everyday lives. In short, people don't leave their usual selves behind when they go on holiday, they simply transition into their summer personalities. You may be surrounded by a different cast, but you still come with a reputation to uphold. In a strictly Foucauldian sense, a bagno is a power structure. You need only look at the neat arrangement of sun loungers and umbrellas to understand that a hierarchical system is at play. Many of the postazioni, the stations comprising two beds and an umbrella, have historically been assigned on a seasonal basis, meaning they have belonged to the same family for June, July and August, at a small fortune, for years. Nowadays, working habits have shifted and people no longer have months to spend away from their desks, but the way desirable spots at a bagno are assigned still depends on assiduity and faithfulness to the establishment. The closer to the sea or to the grid's edges, the better. Crucially, many would never dream of changing which bagno they pick. That kind of treason wouldn't go unnoticed. Of course, traditions are becoming more tenuous than they used to be in the bagno's 1960s heyday. Despite being born in the 19th century as bathing spots for the aristocracy, the concept came into its own when the country was emerging, smiling and covered in sun cream from the rubble of the Second World War. Back then, beach culture was entirely homegrown because most people couldn't afford to go any further than the closest patch of water to their city apartments and would load up their Fiat Cinquecentos with all the necessary tools for a time in the sun. Today, there are plenty of 20 and 30-somethings who no longer want to spend their entire summers on the Ligurian littoral and who pine for Mykonos instead. But the power of childhood memories still has an impressive hold on most minds, which is why the appeal of a proper vacanza is hard to turn down. And so the custom continues to be faithfully passed down through generations. But back to the rules. Here's a helpful guide to surviving a summer at the bagno. 1. Keep your friends close. Heading to the same spot every year means, by extension, that the people around you will also return every summer. This creates temporary communities with well-defined roles, but also a potential for occasional surprises if fortunes or looks should dramatically change year on year. These are, of course, a hotbed of recurring teenage infatuations, but also a chance for grown-ups to mix, make social comparisons and occasionally forge genuine friendships. 
The right level of involvement, or perhaps ignoring, of your umbrella neighbours is an art that's perfected over the years. Too much conversation and you'll come off as nosy, not enough and you'll be branded as conceited. 2. Come prepared. It is perfectly acceptable, if not encouraged, to bring your own packed lunch to the beach. It denotes preparedness and unwillingness to be swindled by the system, which is an Italian's utmost source of pride. Everybody knows the beach restaurant salads will be overpriced and unlikely to be as good as anything homemade, although the rule does come undone in the presence of a good fritto misto. In fact, the more elaborate, the better. Cold pasta is ideal, accompanied by fresh fruit. Meager sandwiches are unlikely to get you anywhere. Slices of coconut may be purchased from the men shouting cocobello and selling bucketfuls while walking up and down the beach, but only a couple of times per week as a gesture of goodwill for the local economy. Most people will be encouraged to consume their beverage and leave space for other customers, but no one should even think about suggesting the group of over 80s engaged in a long game of cards should be moved along. They've probably been coming here since before you were born. Until you've taken your position under the umbrella, it is preferable to wear an outfit that covers chest and bum. For the women, that's often a so-called copricostume, a swimsuit cover, a frilly beach dress that only sees the light of day in the months of July and August, emerging from the dark recesses of a wardrobe. Visits to the beachside restaurant don't necessarily require full redressing, but some degree of effort is recommended. Even donning one extra item of clothing will be appreciated. 4. The daily programme. As for activities, these can involve occasional games of paddle tennis by the Banyashuga, the water's edge, or a very special spin on a branded pedalo. However, days should mainly consist of lying in the sun, reading or filling in crosswords. Hyperactivity will not be tolerated, not within the forest of sun umbrellas at least. And finally, songs. It is likely the Banyo will be playing one of the nation's radio stations, blaring out the season's hits whether you like it or not. It is pointless to resist this in search of a moment of silence. Embrace the chance to witness the annals of music history being written and be thankful that your neighbour isn't playing their favourite track, the tinny tune blaring out of the phone speakers. After all, these summertime songs are called tormentoni, tormentors, for a reason. Whoever said beach life was just about enjoyment anyway? That was Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Romella there. Swim and Sun is available now in bookstores near you. Our next highlight comes from the latest edition of The Concierge. Taiwan's reputation as a destination has been growing apace as tourists from around the world are discovering the spectacular gems it's been hiding for decades, from wild hot springs to mouth-watering night markets to stunning mountain railways. For the lowdown on the northeastern coast of the formerly known Formosa Island, Taiwan resident and reporter Clarissa Wei sent us this dispatch. If you're planning a vacation to Taiwan and want to get a bit off the beaten path, consider a trip to the northeastern coast of the island, flush with old fishing villages and beaches. With the exception of the dog days of summer, it's a wonderful place to meander through all year round. From Taipei, buses are available from the City Hall bus station. It's only about an hour's ride out, but for a more relaxed experience, I recommend taking a rental car. (laughs) 
Start off your day at the Yellow Geopark, a rocky cape that extends out to the sea. It's dotted with sand dollar fossils and haunting rock formations that look like morel mushrooms. Stroll around, snap some photographs. The Geopark is a great vantage point to take in the sea and spot fishing boats in the distance. This is Tang Jinghui, a tourism manager at the Geopark. She says the park was opened in 1964 and became a tourist attraction after a photographer took notice of a rock on the beach shaped like a queen's head, regal and with a tall crown on her head. Today, the park attracts millions of visitors from around the world, most of them entranced by the honeycomb-textured rocks dotted alongside the water. Pre-pandemic, she says, one of the busiest years was 2014. We had over 3.3 million visitors that year. Tang moved to the north coast of Taiwan 44 years ago and fell in love with the sea. She recommends visiting any time between September to November when it's crab season and the fishing boats come in every day to a local harbor called Guihou, with nets full and brimming with wild-caught crustaceans. It's a sea crab, she says, and the fishing grounds is where two currents meet. That area is really rich in microorganisms, and so marine life is abundant. You can buy the crustaceans directly from the fishermen at Guayhole and have food vendors whip up a meal for you on the spot. Open daily from 10 a.m. to 6, the market has a supply of freshly caught seafood all year round. Then, if time allows, drive 30 minutes east to the port city of Jilong to Bad Mama, a quirky cocktail bar and restaurant owned by husband and wife team Adam Hunt and Gemma Lin. Flanked by one of the largest fish markets in Taiwan and located right next to a temple dedicated to the goddess of the sea, it's a lovely place for a nightcap. I'm Adam. I'm one of the owners of Bad Mama in Jilang with Gemma. We call what we do here the art of extreme sustainability because all of the decor, the furniture, the art has been built from what we found on the beach, in the streets, in abandoned buildings. Bad Mama is a bar built out of scraps. The bar is made out of an old fishing boat and the furniture cobbled together from driftwood. The walls are adorned with Gemma's artwork, quirky paintings and paper dolls hanging from the ceiling. This space was a 150-year-old derelict building right in the middle of the fish markets behind the temple to the great goddess Mazu. So it was a complete mess. I mean, we're talking rats as big as cats. The place was filthy, it was overrun, it was disgusting, and we fell in love with it at first sight. It took a lot of work to gut it, rewire it, replumb it, and make it what it is now. In many ways, the space is an ode to the northern coast of Taiwan, where Gemma was born and raised. She spent many years abroad, in Japan and then Australia, where she met Adam. But the seaside villages of Taiwan are where she feels most at home. 
all this concern there, it's got a beautiful water, but then the people live there are still quite a village stuff people, so they all still keeping this original favor, original style. They still like uh, sitting in the street and drinking their beer and talk really, really loud. And then that's uh, the culture. And if you still have the stamina, step outside of Gemma and Adam's bar an hour past midnight into the largest fish market in Taiwan, where boatloads of fish are auctioned off each evening. The fish markets start every night at one o'clock in the morning and they go until dawn every night except Sunday. It's almost like a scene from a Fellini film, a Federico Fellini film, only it's in Asia. You see hammerhead sharks being dragged up past our front door. You see the most incredible array of fresh and live seafood for sale. The sashimi, the tuna. So whether it's for the views, the seafood, or if you're just in need of a weekend getaway from Taipei, the northeastern coast of Taiwan is just the place for a day of relaxation. I think the coast is much more beautiful than the city. I mean, I've lived in all the big cities. I prefer things that are a smaller scale. I've done my time in New York and London and all those places. You know, the place itself, it's, it's not a particularly beautiful city. It's an industrial port. But we are right on the coast and within minutes from the city, they are the most extraordinarily beautiful beaches and coastline and mountains and villages and incredible fishing villages. We're nearing the end of the show, but before we go, we have time for one final highlight. Iceland was one of the 12 nations which founded NATO in 1949, but the proud founding member of the alliance occupies a curious position. It doesn't have a military. In fact, its only serious firepower is the single antique cannon affixed to the prow of one of its Coast Guard ships. Tordes Kolbrum Rekford Gilfordotir is Iceland's Minister of Foreign Affairs, and she sat down with Andrew Muller and the Foreign Desk team at the NATO summit in Vilnius. Andrew began by asking why Iceland has decided to suspend embassy operations in Moscow. Well, it's been, of course, an ongoing both discussion and, you know, thoughts and work uh, within the ministry and also domestically. I mean, we have an embassy, Russian embassy in in Reykjavik with over 20 people. And we have two diplomats in Moscow and a couple of staff. Mm -hmm. So when we see other nations making decisions on sending people back, we always saw that if we would do that in the same way, our embassy would basically be closed (laughs) because we're so few. But again, we we also looked at, does it make sense to have operations in a country where you have almost none political engagement, Mm -hmm. you have almost no business, very minimum cultural ties and cooperation, or should we just suspend the operations for the time being, while these are the circumstances, and if and when they change, we will be up and running again. So we made that decision after quite some time and a lot of thought and uh, and, uh, quite some work. And this is what made sense for us. I mean, I know Iceland is a special case in a lot of respects, but do you think this is something that more NATO countries, more Western countries should think about doing to reinforce the idea that Russia has stepped some margin beyond the bounds of acceptable behaviour? Well, I mean, of course, this is a decision we made and every country has to evaluate their interest. But again, I mean, we have made a decision to isolate Russia as as much as possible. 
we have put sanctions, we have almost no interest, business relations. We will just have to see what happens. I mean, we've had an embassy there since 1944. We got our independence in 1944. So the history is long. But of course, this has to be a decision for each and every country. So we will, we will see. Continuing with the theme of Iceland being a special case, is it strange coming to a summit of a defensive military alliance as a representative of the only member which does not in fact have a standing military? Well, I don't have an experience of the alternative, (laughs) so this is the reality. Of course, it is a unique position, but we are a founding member of NATO and we are a very proud member of NATO and we understand our strategic location is what it is. And we take our role seriously and we understand that we are not only a member of NATO because of our own security, our own deterrence and effect on the Icelandic citizens. It's also a responsible thing to do when you're located where Iceland is located. So we try to do whatever we can to be a reliable partner, reliable ally. And we've tried also to be quite creative when it comes to, for example, the support for Ukraine, because we can't send weapons, but we can, you know, put money in funds which then buys weapons. We can assist with flights with armaments like we did just in the early days, two days after the invasion. So we have our unique position, but we try to do whatever we can. And we are a very proud member of NATO. Denmark and Norway were also founding members in 1949. Between then and the last year and a bit, was there any kind of schism among the Nordic countries between non-NATO members and NATO members? Because obviously Sweden and Finland, for different reasons, decided to sit it out until quite recently. I mean, I think overall and in general, there is this, of course, huge respect for, you know, decision making in each and every country. This has been the case since NATO was founded. I mean, today we have three countries in the EU, two there are not. Iceland and Norway, of course, we have the EA agreement and we work very closely with the EU. So I think that hasn't really been the case. But of course, we recognize how much this changes now with Finland already a member, Sweden very, very, very soon. You know, it will change both our cooperation and also just the security of the region. But, you know, the short answer is that there is a a total respect of each and every decision-making in independent countries. With Sweden's membership now more or less in the bag, the dominant theme of the rest of the summit is obviously going to be Ukraine's membership and the prospects for Ukraine's membership and the circumstances in which that should happen. Does Iceland have a firm view on this? I believe Ukraine deserves clear answers. Ukraine's future is in NATO, and NATO's future is with Ukraine in it. We would not only be doing Ukraine a favour... You know, this is a win-win situation we would be at. It would have a huge effect on the security of the continent, the region, and the alliance. We do put a lot of pressure on Ukraine. They're thankful, they can't be too angry, they do these reforms, you know, they're doing the fight. And, you know, I think we also have to try to truly understand what they're going through. And I think we just can't. So I believe that, like I said, they deserve clear answers and a clear path to become a member of NATO. That's important. And I look at this summit, you know, a milestone on that path. Just finally, then, on that point, is it, do you think, widely understood among the current members of NATO that 
Ukraine is fighting this war on NATO's behalf? Because that has certainly been Ukraine's line. Do you think that regardless of the language that's in the communique, people have at least taken that much on board? I think, yes, we understand and we believe and we see that they are literally fighting our fight. But what gets complicated is, I mean, politics are complicated, human beings are complicated, societies are complicated, democratic societies are extremely complicated. Democracy is chaotic and messy because all, all the things are lying on the table. You can't hide them like the autocrats do until it's broken, then it's broken. But all these materials combined make it quite a challenge for countries to do what it takes and to do what we've done. I mean, it is extremely remarkable what we've done. The unity, the continued support, the clear message and the support from the public, which of course we need and we will continue to need. So of course it is a balance and we need to understand that balance and we need to understand different circumstances in different countries for the greater good. But I also believe that Ukraine understands that as well. And they're asking for an understanding on their behalf. Like I said, I think it's extremely difficult to truly understand what they're going through. I mean, they are losing lives every day, every hour. And to have the pressure to do all things kind of right. And on top of that, going through all these reforms that they're doing. And they're not doing that because we are asking them to. They're doing it because they already made a decision where they're heading. So they're not only defending, you know, legally, internationally recognized borders, defending their sovereignty and independence. They are also, you know, reforming and transforming into a society that they have already made a decision that they will become. And I think that's something that we should also, you know, truly see and recognize. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Emma Searle. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle Radio. Thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.